Phil Del Rey and I were on staff together at Harvest Bible Chapel, and one day our senior pastor, James McDonald, told the staff that he wanted us to have prayer partners. So Phil and I kind of gravitated toward one another, and we began to pray together. But we didn't just pray. I mean, we really cried out to God with one another. I remember doing that on the floor of the worship center at Harvest Bible Chapel where we were just praying and crying out to God for our church and for our families. Phil's a, an evangelist. He's an incredible evangelist. And God uses him in a big way. Among other things, he's a, a chaplain at Cook County Jail in Chicago. And he tells me, he says, Raj, the fruit is hanging low in that place. Now, Phil is also kind of a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. He's fearless. And the story goes, Phil didn't tell me, that one day he walked into Cook County Jail where the guys were watching basketball on TV. He turned off the TV and he said, guys, it's time for church. Let's go. And they came. I love Phil a lot. And it's great that he can come to Edgewood and share uh, once a year or so. I've asked him to tell his testimony sometime. And uh, maybe you can convince him to do that. Welcome, Phil. Morning, church. Oh, come on, say it like you mean it. Good morning, church. Life is too short to not live with zeal and passion. Amen? Last night, I preached a sermon, and uh, the title was, Where Did God Come From? I answered a number of questions in that sermon, such as, Where Did God Come From? If God is good, why is there evil? What about those who have never heard? If God is merciful and loving, how can there be such a thing as hell? How can one God be three? And what about all the contradictions in the Bible? For the first service, I preached the message called The Sermon on the Mouth, based on a proverb that says life and death are in the power of the tongue. For the third service, I want to preach a message entitled Kicking the Sin Habit. How to transform your life by renewing your mind. Can we go to the Lord in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, in the name above every other name, we come before you with our mouths open wide. We pray, Father God, that you would fill it. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. Father, we came together this morning as a body, corporately, to express our love and our gratitude for your love for us. Thank you, Father God, for all the blessings that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew one twenty one says, They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's what Jesus wants to save us from. He wants to save us from the guilt and the, the power and the condemnation of sin. He wants to save us from the guilt of sin, that's the past. He wants to save us from the power of sin, that's the present. And he wants to save us from the condemnation of sin, that's the future. You can be wrong about a lot of things, but if you're wrong about the doctrine of sin 
and how it relates to redemption and how we get forgiven for our sin, you're wrong enough to spend eternity separated from God. The doctrine of sin is unique to the Judeo-Christian scriptures. You won't find this understanding in any other so-called holy book. It's exclusive to the Word of God, the Bible. What is sin? Where did it come from? What are its effects? How do we overcome it and why? What is it? Romans chapter 14 tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. He's speaking about matters of conscience, matters of gray areas. That are some, there are some things that are okay for one person that are not okay for another person. I really don't want to get into that this morning. I don't have that kind of time. I want to take us somewhere else. I believe the Lord wants us to go somewhere else. But he's talking about your conscience. Romans 2.15 says, The law is written on every man's heart. Then we have the sin of omission. In James 4.17 it says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 25 at the end of time when there are only two kinds of people left in the universe, the sheep and the goats. And the thing that distinguishes in this particular chapter the sheep from the goats is when Jesus says to the goats, I was sick, I was poor, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was in prison, and you ministered to me. Those are the things, that's the sin of omission. Where were you, he says, to the goats. But the sin of commission is found in the understanding of the in the correct understanding of the 10 commandments the 10 commandments the 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 implications and the theological implications and the significance of the 10 commandments cannot be overstated in Romans 7:7 7, 7, Paul said I would not have known what sin was had the law not said thou shalt not covet 1 John 3:4 says sin is the transgression of the law. Now I'm talking about the spiritual interpretation of the law rather than the letter of the law. The letter of the law says, Thou shalt not murder, but Jesus said, If you're angry, even angry with your brother, if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that particular law. The, the letter of the law says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but the spirit of the law says, If you even entertain impure thoughts, you are guilty of breaking that particular law. What are the effects of sin? God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 59, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It is sin that destroys our relationship with God. It's sin that separates us from God. And unrepentant sin will separate us from God forever. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That word death means eternal separation from God. Where did it come from? The first sin in the universe is recorded for us in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. God opens the curtains of time and he allows us to peer into the mystery of iniquity. 
Lucifer was created. He was perfect when he was created. In fact, it says he was perfect in beauty and filled with wisdom. Can you imagine that? God created an angel who was perfect in beauty and filled with wisdom. Apparently what happened was he became so enamored with himself. It says he was the the covering cherub, as if he covered the very holiness of God. It says he walked among the fiery stones, and he literally saw God face to face. We know from another scripture that timbrels and pipes were associated with Lucifer, so there's worship and music that is somehow associated with him, and it's almost as if Lucifer would, 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 would present the glory and the worship to God, and it's almost as if he was in charge of security, if I could say such a thing, because it says he covered the very holiness of God. But it says he became discontent. It doesn't say that. It's implied. In the Isaiah and the Ezekiel passages, five times Lucifer said, I will. In heaven, well, anywhere in the universe, it said, he said, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. That is the essence of sin. When we exalt our will or put our will before the will of God, you've crossed the line. You've sinned. We believe based on Revelation chapter 12 that Lucifer convinced a third of the angels to follow him in this rebellion. So that is how sin entered the universe and that is when Lucifer's name, which meant the light one, was changed to Satan or Satan, which means the adversary and the accuser of the brethren and he was cast down to the earth. The first sin on this planet was when Satan, appearing as a serpent, created the same exact scenario in Adam and Eve. He questioned the word of God and Adam and Eve committed the same exact sin. They coveted something. Lucifer coveted the worship and the glory that belongs to God alone and Eve coveted the knowledge of good and evil to be like God. God. And when our first parents sinned, the whole earth was cursed with the curse of sin. So that when Adam and Eve had children, they were born with the curse of sin as we were born with the curse of sin. sin. We were born with a spot. The spot was sin. We were born sinners. But there's two kinds of sin. We we are sinners by nature, but we are sinners by choice. We were born in sin, but there came a time when we knowingly, willfully, premeditatively, after an age of accountability, we knew what we were doing was wrong, and we did it anyway. And that is why this world is like it is, because of sin. How bad is it? Well, when an unbeliever stands before God, the saints will stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And what will be determined there is what our rewards, if any, will be. 
But for those who die without Christ, they will stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And what will be determined there is some will be beaten with few and some will be beaten with many stripes. Just as there are different levels of reward in heaven, there are different levels of punishment in hell. My point I want to make here is this. When the unbelievers, those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, stand before God, the judgment bar of God, what they will be charged with is murder. They will be charged with murdering the Son of the living God. Now, in Chicago, I, I, I'm a chaplain at Cook County Jail, and I have sat through a number of trials. And I'll never forget a murder trial that I sat through. There was an eyewitness who said that the man on trial, she saw him commit the murder. He was the shooter. She pointed him out in court. It was clear and obvious to everyone that this man was guilty. And the judge sentenced him to, the judge declared him not guilty. He killed a nobody. He killed somebody nobody cared about, apparently. In Chicago and in most major cities, it's one thing to kill a skid row bum. But if you happen to kill the President of the United States, for example, all the legal powers, all the political power, all the power of the United States government would come against you to make absolutely certain that you got the maximum penalty accorded by law if you were to kill the President of the United States. Well, in this case, those who stand before the judgment bar of God will be charged with murdering Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was our sins that necessitated the death of Christ. In a very real way, you and I murdered the Son of the living God. And because of the nature of God, and because of His perfect holiness, hell is the result. How do we kick the sin habit? This is one question that comes into our ministry perhaps more than any other question. One of the most requested answers we get is, how do I kick the sin habit? I have seen many people who are tormented by their sins. I've seen people who I think loved the Lord but could not break free of certain sins. And I have seen men that are literally tormented because they can't seem to get free from the power of sin. Deliverance from the guilt and the power and the condemnation of sin is a work of grace. A work of grace is something that only God can do and he does it in you and through you. Deliverance from the power of sin is a work of grace. A work of grace is something that only God can do but paradoxically our part must be factored in. First, God's part. We know from the word of God that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God knew. Obviously, God knows everything in advance. He knows everything that there could be. 
And God knew what would happen if he gave these angels and he gave us freedom of choice. We're free moral agents. That's the only way love can be. We're free to love God. We're free to choose God. We're free to seek God. Or we're free to reject him. That's how it was in heaven. That's how it has to be. That's the only way love can work. Forced love is a contradiction in terms. So Jesus was slain before the, before the foundation of the world. The plan was already in place that it, was, that it would be the blood of the Lamb of God that would provide redemption. In Colossians chapter 2.15, We read, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. It was the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he broke the power of sin. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. But I've got news for you today, brothers and sisters. You do not have to sin. Satan cannot force you to sin. Sin is a choice. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall no longer be master over you, Christian, for you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. You are no longer under the condemnation or the guilt or the power of the law of sin and death. You are now under, if I could say such a thing, the law of grace. You're under grace. In Titus 2.11, we discover that grace is personified in Jesus Christ. The word of God says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." The word grace is one of the most beautiful words this side of heaven. In the original, it's pronounced charis. As I look in, the, as I look in Spiros Zohadides' Greek dictionary, his definition of grace is the most beautiful I've ever seen. I collect illustrations of grace. This is the most beautiful definition of grace I have ever found. He says, three entries. Number one, grace is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, including an attitude of gratitude. I love that. Grace is the divine influence upon my heart. It's grace that's... uh, developing my palate. It's grace that allows me to taste and see the goodness of God. It's the divine influence upon my heart. Number two, 
It's God's goodwill, loving kindness, favor. It's used of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns us to Christ, keeps us in Christ, strengthens us in Christ, increases us in our faith, knowledge, and affection, and kindles in us the exercise of Christian virtue and moral excellence. Number three, it's the spiritual condition of one who is governed by divine grace. (laughs) Wow. The divine influence upon my heart, teaching me to say no to ungodliness. It's it's, It's the spiritual condition of one who is governed by divine grace. Do you think lightly of the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? And how kind is he? In Romans 5.8, the word of God says, he demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater love than a man could have for another but to lay down his life for a friend. He calls us his friends. He demonstrated his love. It wasn't the nails that held Christ to the cross. It was his love for you and for me. His love for us held him to that cross. It wasn't the ropes in the Garden of Gethsemane that held his wrists together. It was his love for you and for me. Deliverance from sin is a work of grace. It's something that God does in you and through you. Paradoxically, our part must be factored in. In Galatians 5.22, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Spirit of God working in my life is Helping me and encouraging me and enabling me to control myself. Philippians 2.13 says it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You've heard the phrase, it's an acquired taste. Well, Jesus is teaching us to love the taste of holiness and love and peace and Christian virtue and moral excellence. It's it's Christ in us. It's the Spirit of God in us that's teaching us to, well, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. God is teaching us to hate evil and to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, and against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be, may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, stand firm. You know, we sometimes seem to forget the spiritual realm in which we live. In Revelation 12, it says, Satan makes war against the saints. When I think of Daniel, is it chapter 10 where Daniel prays? And 21 days later, an archangel shows up and says, Daniel, from the day you sought wisdom, your prayers were heard, and I was dispatched. But the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days, and I finally had to call Michael to come and help me. Here I am. Sorry for the delay. What does that look like? This is real. This isn't some parable. This isn't, uh, he's not speaking spiritually or symbolically. This is real. He was withheld in the heavenlies, withstood, resisted for 21 days by the prince of Persia. What do they do when they're, when, when they're, when they're battling in the spiritual realm? Do they have swords of flames? What do they do, throw lightning bolts at each other? We don't know. How about when, uh, is it 1 Kings 6 or 2 Kings 6, where uh, uh, Elisha's, uh, the king is all angry because Elisha hears what he's even saying in his bedroom and he can't get anything done. So he sends the army to take care of Elisha and his little, uh, his little servant Gehazi walks out the door and he runs back in and he says, Elisha, the whole town is surrounded by the king's army. And Elisha says, Oive. And he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see that there are more with us than there are against us. And God allows Gehazi to see in the spiritual realm. He goes outside again and he sees chariots and horses of fire. And there are more of them than, of them than the army from the king. Are there horses and chariots of fire around this room right now? I don't know. Maybe there are. Are Satan's army, are, are, is his army also surrounding this building? The Bible clearly says there is a battle for the soul of man, and the battle is for what you believe and what you believe about Jesus Christ and who he is. And this issue of sin and how to deal with it. We are told to stand firm having girded your loins with truth. When you get up in the morning, you need to put on your belt of truth. It was the belt of truth that held every other piece of armor on the Roman soldier. Without the belt of truth, nothing else would fit or work or hold. 
What is the belt of truth? It means we are to know the truth. It means we're to love the truth. It means we're to practice the truth. It means we're to believe the truth and teach the truth. It means we put on truth. Like it, it, we, it means we put on the Lord Jesus Christ like an armor of light because Jesus is the truth. It means we walk in the truth. It means we hate lying and evil and falsehood and every wicked way. We put on the belt of truth. It is the foundation of our lives. Jesus, the truth. The, Romans 3. Yeah. Next, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate guards the heart. The Bible says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's the outer court. Here's the inner court. And here's the Holy of Holies. We are to guard our hearts. Nothing impure or unclean can come into the Holy of Holies. You've got to have a centurion standing in front of your heart. And every time something impure or unclean or ungodly or something that doesn't fit through the grid of Philippians 4.8 wants to come into your heart, you've got to do spiritual warfare right then and there and reject it and kick it out. In Proverbs 4.23 it says, Above all else. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. So we have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to be prepared. We are to be, vil vil <laughs> We're to be vigilant. We're to be diligent. We're to be prepared to give a reason to every man who would ask us for the hope that we have. We've got to have a civil defense plan. You've got to know in advance what you're going to do when, not if, but when the enemy strikes. We've got to be prepared with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, the shield of faith. To the ancient Hebrew, there was no idea of faith apart from the idea of faithfulness because what is true is trustworthy. And in our being faithful to him, quoting from Ravi Zacharias, we find the purpose for which we were designed. And that's not bondage, that is liberating. In our being faithful, if you believe in Jesus, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you truly believe in Jesus, believe means to have faith. It's a verb in the Greek. And if your faith is genuine, it will result in a life of faithfulness to Jesus. Who are the epistles written to? To the faithful in Christ. Faithful is a nice way of saying obedient. Our obedience, however, is based on love, not law. We love him. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Our love for Christ results in a life of faithfulness. The difference between David and when David faced Goliath and the Israelites were behind him, the Israelites represented the Old Testament church, if I could use such a phrase, professor. I'm sorry, you're not a professor, but my brother who teaches Old Testament. If I could use such a, such a phrase, the Old Testament church, they were shaking in their boots, chewing their fingernails, scared to death of Goliath. And the difference between David and Goliath was the Israelites believed in God, but David believed God. 
Everybody believes in God. There's no such thing as an atheist. God doesn't believe in atheists, which is proof the atheist doesn't exist. The difference is between David and the, and the Israelites. David had a conviction. The Israelites had a preference. The difference between a preference and a conviction, oh, I prefer Jesus. The difference between a preference and a conviction is a preference is something you can change your mind about. A conviction is something you're willing to die for. You haven't found anything worth living for until you found something worth dying for. And when your house is built on the rock of Jesus Christ, even though the winds may blow and the storms may come and the rains might beat on your house, if it's founded on the rock, you will stand. That's the shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet represented protection for the head. Spiritually speaking, he's talking about your mind. Saints, please hear this. All sin started as a thought in the mind. In James 1.14 it says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one is tempted and carried away, carried away in your thoughts, carried away in your imaginations, and you begin to think about that sin, and you begin to rationalize and justify it, and before you know it, you've already crossed the line. You're entertaining sinful thinking. You are what you are, and you change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. Your mind is not a garbage dump, it's a temple. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do I renew my mind? You wash it in the water of the word, Ephesians chapter 5. We need to be brainwashed because the world has already brainwashed the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to brainwash you one way, but the word of God will cleanse your mind. 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Wow! Paul said we have the mind of Christ. We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is a good report, let your mind dwell on these things. If what you're thinking isn't true, if it's not right, if it's not honorable, if it's not pure, if it's not excellent, if it's not worthy of praise, you have no business Entertaining that in God's mind, in Christ's mind. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. What an incredible thing to think. That only man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks on and in your heart. So the psalmist prays, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
be pleasing to you. This is how to be rich toward the things of God. This is how to live the abundant life that Jesus spoke of. Paul goes on to say, and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, our only offensive weapon, the better you know the Word of God, the better you know the God of the Word, the better you are able to discern and correctly interpret and apply the Word of God, the more valuable you are in the battle for the soul of men. The souls of men. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, correctly interpreting and applying the Word of God. And the very next verse says, we should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God wants us to be able to master to wield the sword of the Word of God like a master. It's also a good idea to change your friends. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20, One of my favorite, He who walks with wise men will become wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. He who walks with wise men will become wise. Seek wisdom, Solomon said. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Moses was willing to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. The idea was he'd rather live with the people of God as a shepherd rather than live in the palace of Pharaoh who was a pagan because he was looking to the reward God wants us to live in light of eternity. The worship team is going to come and they've got a closing song and then I have a closing thought. Paul finishes the thought by saying, pray. Pray at all times in the Spirit. The resurrection, is it an event? Or is it a present experience? Or is it both? Paul talked about the power of the resurrection, that I might know him and the power of the resurrection. It's that power to raise us from being dead in our trespasses and sins that enables and empowers us to walk in newness of life. And yet, again, our part must be factored in. So once you've got all the armor on, 
You need to pray because apart from him, we can do nothing. On a personal note, there's a seminary that is saying that 80% of the young people that come from churches that go to secular colleges and universities are walking away from their faith. There are many college professors who can take the average Christian and twist them into a theological pretzel in less than a minute. There's a book back there called Answering Atheism with Questions. What did Jesus do when the false teachers tried to trap him? He didn't have to argue doctrine with them. All he had to do was ask the right question, and it shut their mouths every time. There's a whole bunch of mouth-stopping questions in that book, and it's written in non-technical, easy-to-read language. has to be, because that's the only level I can reach. <laughs> um, we uh, don't charge for our books. We give them to prisoners free. We send them to third world, pastors in third-world countries for free. We depend on donations to make it happen. If you want one of those books and money's really tight for you, take it with an absolutely clear conscience. Romans 14 does not apply here. If you can make a donation for the books, please do. God, God bless you. I pray for his peace. I pray right now, Father God, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon these dear people that we might know you better and better and the power of your resurrection in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Peace unto this house. Thank you.